Before we start, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. If you're listening around kids or just don't feel like hearing that, consider skipping this one. By the start of the 1960s, Belgium had been ruling huge swaths of the Congo for nearly eight decades. First as private property and then as a colony under the infamous King Leopold II and one of the most notoriously horrific colonial regimes of the era. Professor George Zongola Talaja grew up in the Congo towards the end of this racist regime. Today, he is a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, but he still has vivid memories from that time. Uh, even at my age, uh, 16, uh, I had seen the um, colonial officials uh, whipping prisoners. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was done at 6 a.m. in the morning and at 12 noon, uh, they would raise a Belgian flag and prisoners would be taken across the flagpole and whipped with this uh, hippopotamus uh, hide that was used to, to whip people, which was very, very dangerous. Even though he was only 16 at the time, George remembers one particular day very clearly. June 30th, 1960. L'indépendance du Congo constitue l'aboutissement de l'œuvre conçue par le génie du roi Léopold II. He remembers it because it's the day his country gained independence and because of two speeches given at the handover ceremony, one by the newly elected Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba and the other by the outgoing Belgian king, King Baudouin. The Belgian king spoke first and he used his time on the podium to deliver this fawning, gross mischaracterization of Belgium's rule in the Congo. He basically gave himself, the Belgian king, the colonizer, credit for the Congo's independence, not the Congolese people who fought and died for liberation. Then, the newly appointed Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba took the stage and gave this impromptu speech. In the speech, Lumumba says, we are proud of this struggle of tears, of fire, and of blood to the depths of our being, for it was a noble and just struggle, and it was indispensable to put an end to the humiliating slavery that was imposed upon us by force. The European and the American journalists watching in the crowd that day were shocked. At the time, The Guardian reported it under the headline, Mr. Patrice Lumumba's offensive speech in the king's presence. And the king nearly walked out on the ceremony entirely. But many of the Congolese people in the crowd and those watching on TV across the world, they loved it. There are tapes of, you know, video of, of, his, uh, of the speech. He's electrifying. This is Bruce Kuklik, an American historian who wrote a book about Patrice Lumumba. Lumumba gets done with this oration. Vive l'indépendance et l'unité africaine. Vive le Congo indépendant et souverain. And you see the audience just stand up and cheer and clap because he had it. He had this best, I mean, it's cliche now to talk about the charisma of politicians, but whatever it was, this guy had it. Uh, Lumumba's speech uh, really uh, gave us a lot of uh, courage and uh, we're very, very overjoyed by that speech because it told us it is. It, it told the realities we had lived 
We know very, very well, mostly the fact that the independence of the Congo was not a gift from Belgium, as King Baudouin has uh, intimated. It was a result of the struggle of Congolese people who had uh, fought and died to get their freedom. But other world leaders didn't see it the same way. To them, his fierce independence was scary. A genuinely independent Congo in full control of their rich uranium resources, that made Belgians and their American allies very uneasy. They used that uranium for things like the atomic bomb. And they worried that Lumumba would ally with the Soviets, and therefore, they saw him as a very big problem. Everyone, the UN, Belgium, the United States, other African leaders, saw that this guy was a loose cannon. They all began pulling back from him in various ways. I wouldn't say that they all conspired against him, but what they did is you started finding various alliances between various groups that were all designed to block Lumumba Just a few months after that famous speech and after he was sworn in as prime minister of the new country, Patrice Lumumba was overthrown in a coup and placed under house arrest by a man named Joseph Mobutu, who was backed by the United States. And since then, Lumumba sensed that every day that he stayed in the Congo, his own life and the lives of his family were at risk. We're telling you the story of Lumumba because at this moment, while he and his family are in grave danger, an Egyptian diplomat by the name of Mohammed Abdelaziz Ishaq makes a critical suggestion to him, one that would change the course of his family's lives. He suggests a scary but worthwhile plan to smuggle Lumumba's children out of the Congo and into safety in Cairo. And that's where our story begins today. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. In the months before the Congo gained independence, the director of the African Association of Egypt, Mohamed Abdelaziz Ishaq, was traveling a lot between Cairo and Leopoldville, now called Kinshasa, basically helping to establish relationships between the two countries' governments, setting up embassies, networking, that kind of thing. And he'd been appointed by the Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was fully supportive of Patrice Lumumba and his cause. And during the process, the two men... Abdelaziz and Lumumba, they became close. We're not fully sure of the details, but in the aftermath of the coup, Abdelaziz suggests to Lumumba a plan to smuggle three of his children out of the country and to safety in Cairo, where Abdelaziz and his family would personally take care of the children. Lumumba agreed. This is producer Nadine Shakir who reported this story. The idea, as planned by Abdelaziz and Lumumba together, was to make the whole thing look like a kidnapping to Mobutu's troops, who were surrounding Lumumba's residence at the time. So on a Friday evening of October 28, 1960, as the sun went down, the smuggling operation began. And Lumumba knew that if they arrested him while the, uh, the children were in Congo, they would have massacred them one by one. 
This is Sahya Abdel Nasser, Associate Professor and Chair of English at the American University in Cairo, and great-granddaughter to the late Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was involved in this plot. They didn't know what was happening, and uh, when they last saw their father, he held them, kissed them, and said, take care of one another, and you are going to your father. He said, you know, they were going to Gamal Abdel Nasser, he, was their, he would be their father and he would take care of them. But just study, you have to complete your education. And he embraced them and went with them to the jeep. And after they got in, repeated more than once, take care of one another, take care of one another. He kept repeating that farewell until the car drove away. It was dark. And my father had uh, cases of whiskey in the back of the jeep. And he distributed that on the checkpoints on Mobutu's insurgent soldiers' uh, checkpoints so that they would let him in. This is Bahgat, Muhammad Abdul Aziz Ishaq's son. And uh, in agreement with Lubumba, the children with, uh, were packed and everything was ready. And uh, he put them in the back of the jeep with their luggage and let them sleep because it was time to sleep too. So it just happened. They wrapped them in rags and put them in, in the back of the van. This is Shams Noor Abdelaziz Ishaq, Bahgat's sister. There were uh, many obstacles on the way to the airport. Obstacles like militia checkpoints, where they'd stop and search the van. Luckily, the children were hidden well under the blankets, and nobody noticed anything unusual. And it was uh, luck that the children didn't cry, didn't snore, didn't... Uh, make any voices of, of any kind until they reached the airport. The plan could have unraveled at any point, even when they arrived at the airport close to midnight. When they did eventually make it to the airport, Bahka told us that a group of Danish officials were waiting for them, ready to stop Lumumba's children from getting on the plane. So my father spoke to the head of the Danish contingent and told him, my children are sleeping in the back and we are leaving. Here is my tickets and my passports and so on. And uh, my father, he had them added to his passport as his own children with their, their picture in his passport. The photos were intentionally blurry to throw off any suspicion that the children were Lumumba's. Their pictures were all over the newspapers. Also, the children were given made-up Egyptian names. But there was one glaring problem. At the airport, he was asked, how come this picture is the picture of your children and they don't look like you at all? My father was uh, white-skinned and his eyes were blue. He had uh, fair hair. And uh, the Lumumas, they were, of course, Congolese. Ishad told the Danish officer that he was married to an African woman, but the Danish officer was still suspicious. He wanted to see the children before they boarded the plane. He was insistent. And uh, Muhammad Abdelaziz Ishaq said, you know, they're children, they have slept, and he's a diplomat, and how can you wake children up? This is illogical. And there were some Egyptian officers around Ishaq, which unnerved the other officer, because he had seen pictures of the children with Patrice Lumumba. And uh, he said, you know, there is no way that the children in this picture are the children of this man, uh, Ishaq. 
But then, because he was unnerved by the Egyptian officers, he, le- he just let it go. And uh, when the children were on the plane, they felt secure, and the hostess announced that they were about to take off. And then they were told, you know, that they could wake up. Once they arrived in Cairo, Ishaq and the children went straight to his family home. No one really knew about the escape mission except for the people involved, not even Abdelaziz's wife. Uh, my mother didn't know anything uh, about it until they arrived to her doorstep. And when she opened the door to find him with the three kids, two boys and a girl, hugging her and kissing her and calling her Mama Zizi, she was, <laughs> she was uh, astonished and not knowing uh, what to do. And she looked at him and then he, he told her, I'll tell you later, but um, these are the kids of Patrice Lumumba. I mean, I should think that my, my mother first was, was a, a bit taken aback. Instead of taking care of three kids, then now she will have to take care of six kids. <laughs> but my father, for, for her, was so important, he was so much loved that she would take anything from him. Once uh, my father got rid of all the journalists and uh, they had taken all the pictures they wanted to take and they left, uh, we sat together, and uh, my father uh, told us uh, the story. Each of the Egyptian children was paired with one of the Lumumba kids. So Patrice and Bahgat, my brother, they were together. They are the middle boys. And uh, Magdi, the elder, uh, with Francois in the same bed. And Juliana with me in my bed. We shared beds. <laughs> we, we, we could talk together, we could play together, and um, they became our uh, siblings, our, our brothers and sisters. Bahga told us that it was easy for all of them to get along, even when the children didn't speak the same language in the beginning. The Lumumba children spoke French, and the Ishaq children spoke Arabic. We did not need a language. Um, as, as children, there were so many things we were doing. Before they came, when they came, we continued doing the same things. Maybe some um, uh, mischievous stuff uh, with Magdi and Francois, playing uh, football in the street and so on. Patrice and I mostly watch TV. <laughs> so this is how natural uh, the thing is without, without language. But uh, me and, uh, and Juliana, because of the difference of, of age and because of the, the very kind and caring treatment that she needed, because she was very sick when she arrived, very thin, very sick. And as a girl, of course, she missed her father uh, a lot, and my father felt that. So he gave her more, more, more care, and this arose my jealousy. The children and the newspapers had a nickname for the Ishaq children's mom, Mama Zizi. And the home she prepared for the children was different from other Egyptian homes. She shared her husband's passion for supporting Pan-African causes and the men and the women fighting for them. She would open her house to everyone from refugees to African leaders. And the place was constantly buzzing with dinner parties and festive gatherings, which the press were also invited to. Uh, the children stayed for two years with Ishaq. In the time they spent in his house, they saw many African leaders and uh, 
there were many African students and scholars living in Egypt. The children were heavily scrutinized by the media. In footage from the time, you see them standing in front of these big press lights, looking a bit like deer caught in the headlights. Photographers were allowed to take pictures of them, getting ready for school, sitting in front of their class, or being led by hand by a teacher in a school line. And the Ishaqs, they were also featured in newspaper spreads with the Lumumbas, in photo ops of the six children together, or in more candid pictures taken of them sitting on the garden floor or learning Arabic. Shams has these pictures still in her home today. This is Juliana always holding my hand. One had a caption that read, Shams teaching Juliana Lumumba the piano. The octave, her first octave. <laughs> The photos and media coverage might have painted a dreamlike story. But behind the scenes, there were bigger political forces at play. Tell us a little bit about the kind of press you got and why was there so much attention on the story? Well, uh, it was for Egypt to show the world uh, that we are supporting African uh, nationalism. Of course, because there was a feeling also that Lumumba uh, was a hero. So that was the feeling in Egypt at the time, and that was how the, all this press was about. For us, it was annoying to have so many journalists and photographers. I remember Francois... Francois was uh, one of the Lumumba children. Uh, ...shot one of the photographers in the leg with um, the rifle with the pellets, with the small pellets. <laughs> and, and my mother had to nurse him. And <laughs> we tried to reach Lumumba's children for the story, but weren't successful. But in digging up archives, we found several interviews where Juliana mentions her time in Egypt. This is one of them where she speaks to a Congolese TV. She says the gentleman who helped us escape from the Congo, Mr. Abdelaziz Ishaq, he created this African association in 1948, just to let you know the environment in which we grew up. It was the heart of the African fight. So we grew up in this atmosphere, an atmosphere of struggle, of conversation around freedom, of conversation with everyone who fought for freedom. And that was the atmosphere of our home. And that made sure that we never forgot who we were. And I give credit to those people who, even though we were going through difficulties far from home, we were still surrounded by affection from our Egyptian parents. But as the children settled into their new lives in Cairo, back in the Congo, Patrice Lumumba was still living under house arrest. His rogue chief of staff, Joseph Mobutu, who was backed by the U.S. and Belgium, had seized power and was keeping Patrice Lumumba locked down by his own troops and the United Nations forces. And then on November 27, 1960, a month after the children had been smuggled out, Lumumba tried to escape himself. Here's historian Bruce Kuklik again. She thinks the only way I can uh, I can mend matters, the only way I, I, Lumumba, can get back into power is to try to break out of this ring of soldiers that's around my mansion. And he sneaks out of the prime minister's mansion 
and tries to make it into uh, the, the northern provinces of the Congo. And the Congo doesn't have 50,000 multi-lane highways in 1960. So his enemies are able to track him once he gets on the road with a little entourage of three or four uh, cars. He's captured. They caught him on his way to Stanleyville and flew him back. Patrice Lumumba securely wrote, and with him were men who served in his cabinet when he was prime minister. They were bundled into a heavily guarded lorry and driven off towards a place called Binza. And now they throw him in jail right outside of Leopoldville, Kinshasa. Lumumba's bonds are tightened. They were taking no chances. Before that, Lumumba suffered more indignities, including being forced to eat a speech which he restated his claim to be the Congo's rightful premier. Even in bonds, Lumumba remains a dangerous prisoner. The politicians don't know what to do. And it slowly dawns on them that from their point of view, the only way that the situation is going to be resolved is that if Lumumba is eliminated, if he's somehow killed. But no one is willing to do it. They're all scared, except that they do know that in Katanga province, which is a province in the extreme east, southeast of the Congo, there are a group of politicians who absolutely hate Lumumba. Katanga was home to a separatist political movement backed by the West and against Lumumba. So how do we get rid of this guy? What do we do with this guy? He's a problem. Let's ship him to Katanga. They'll kill him and they'll get the blame for it. And that's what they do. And then once he's there, within 24 hours, they kill him. On January 17, 1961, Lumumba and two of his former ministers were captured by Mobutu soldiers and executed in cold blood by a firing squad. Present at the killings were Congolese privates who were being commanded by a Flemish sergeant and Katanga politicians. After Lumumba was killed, instead of burying him, they exhumed his body from a shallow hole and had it dissolved in a vat of acid. A Belgian policeman was brought in to carry out this gruesome task. You can imagine what this ghastly job was. And they hacked off Lumumba's limbs and everything and stuck them in acid and got rid of most of it. Even then, there was stuff left over. The policeman held onto a small box of Lumumba's teeth. One of the reasons that uh, he had done it was to prove to the the powers that be in Katanga that they had indeed done their job. Uh, when this happened, Gamal Abdul Nasser made a speech, a very eloquent one about Lumumba and uh, the assassination of Lumumba, and he was a nationalist and he loved his people, and uh, how, how can this happen? Uh, away from the will of the people of the Congo, and so on. After the murder, the villagers involved in the capture were rewarded $8,000 by the Congolese state. With the news of his murder, riots erupted in Cairo. Finally, reaction in Cairo. Carrying Lumumba's picture, a large crowd marched to the Belgian embassy. Demonstrators climbed the railings and began their anti-Belgian protest by kicking down the embassy shield. Coming up, 
Patrice Lumumba's children seek proper recognition for their father's legacy. Lumumba was in power for three months, and he was only 34 when he was murdered. According to George, the government tried to cover it up by saying Lumumba and his comrades were killed while trying to break out of jail. But nonsense. And of course, no one believed that, that story from... Uh, he told us that later that year, the United Nations investigated the murder. So we know that Lumumba was uh, brought to uh, Katanga and orders from uh, Belgian government and the Belgian king over the support of the United States, the CIA. So we had all of these... Uh, powers that were allied uh, against him, namely the United States, uh, Belgium, France, the United Kingdom, together with the uh, multinationals involved in the uh, exploitation of uh, minerals. When it came out in 1975, uh, President Ford made him a slip of tongue and let go that the CIA had been involved in assassination matters. This is ex-CIA officer Larry Devlin in an interview on NPR. Larry died in 2008. I'd already had instructions before the assassination man came up that it would we should try and do anything to remove Lumumba from power. At the time, I certainly felt very strongly that we... Uh, that, that Lumumba was a danger indirectly to the United States because the, the Soviets were very clearly setting out to establish a position of, if not of control, at least of great influence within the country. And uh, it was part of my job to try and prevent that. In fact, it was a very key factor in my, my assignment. The Lumumba children, who were 10, 8, and 5 years old, and still living at home with the Ishaq family in Cairo, they weren't told about their father's murder. The eldest, Francois, heard about it in school from another student and burst into tears. Just last year, a Belgium judge ruled that Lumumba's gold-plated tooth be returned to the Congo this summer, which had been kept as a family heirloom by the policemen, according to news reports. This is after years of Lumumba's family lobbying for its return. On June 30, 2020, on the 60th anniversary of Congolese independence, Lumumba's daughter, Juliana, the youngest daughter, who was close to Shams, she wrote an open letter to the King of Belgium pleading with him that her father's remains finally be returned to his homeland. This is an excerpt from the letter that Juliana reads out in a video. For dear Votre Majesty, to tell your majesty how much our hearts buckle under the weight of unspeakable afflictions, we remind you that since January 17, 1961, we have had no information to determine with any certainty the circumstances of our father's tragic death, nor what has become of his remains. The years pass and our father's remains are a dead man without a funeral oration, a corpse without bones. So why, after his terrible murder, have Lumumba's remains been condemned to stay a soul forever wandering, without a grave to shelter his eternal rest? We appeal to you to imagine, in these moments, which so break our hearts, the added torments which we are inflicting on ourselves through this request, as we build up our hopes that we might give our father a burial to immortalize his memory. 
Despite living with these scars of colonialism and through the horrific public spectacle around their father's murder, the Lumumba's children grew up to be public figures in their own right, in Egypt and worldwide. Juliana uh, was um, assigned as a minister of uh, information and then a minister of culture in the Kabila government. And then uh, when she left that, she was assigned as the uh, head of the African Union Chamber of Commerce in Cairo. And she, she came and she stayed at the villa with, uh, with my mother. And seeing Juliana after all those years, that was a beautiful memory for me. And uh, uh, Francois used to play football and he was uh, on the, the Zamalek team uh, with the generation of Farouk Ghaffar, but he did not continue. Francois returned to the Congo in the 1990s and created a small Lumumbist political movement against Mobutu. Patrice loved Egypt and lived there the longest, for 34 years. He was invited by the Mobutu government many times to go back to the Congo, and he refused, but eventually ended up going back and working as a government clerk in Kinshasa. He left Egypt around the early 2000s. But the Lumumba children and the Ishaq children, they stayed in touch for the rest of their lives. Bahagat and Patrice Jr., like their fathers, were particularly close. He was online with me on Skype and all that, and we used to talk and laugh and uh, tell stories and uh, memories and all that every day. He was my sole brother. He was not only my adopted brother. I mean, I, I would be telling him something and he would say, I, I feel the same. And uh, what about so and so and so? And I say, it is exactly the same. So for us, we were like twins, Patrice and I, and I miss him very much. By the 1970s, after Gamal Abdel Nasser's death, Egypt's foreign policy priorities were changing direction and turning away from the solidarities that had been so central in the 50s and the 60s. Pan-Africanism was sort of dying out. And shortly afterwards, Mohammed Abdel Aziz Ishaq, Bahgat, and Shams's dad, who orchestrated the escape plan and took Lumumba's children under his wing, he was dismissed from his post at the foreign ministry. He died in 1969. In 1999, Belgium ordered a probe into its role in the Mumba's death and actions in the Congo. The parliamentary inquiry eventually determined that the government was morally responsible for Lumumba's death, but failed to connect itself to the murder. In 2002, Belgium released a formal apology to Lumumba's family, which the Lumumba's did not accept. This episode of Kerning Cultures is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we are part of a bigger network. We have 12 shows in total, in Arabic and in English. They are fabulous, and we encourage you to check them out. Today's episode was written and produced by Nadine Shakir and edited by me, Dana Balut, and Alex Atak. 
with additional support from Zina Duwaydad, Shraddha Joshi, and Persia Verlin. Fact-checking by Tamara Jubudi, sound design by Alex Atak, and mixing by Mohamed Khreizat. A big thank you to Zainab Shams Noor, Bahgat Abdelaziz Ishaq, Tahey Abdel Nasser, George Zungola Talanja, Hamdi Shahrawi, and Bruce Kuklik for generously giving me their time and speaking to me for the story. If you like this episode, please share it on your social media and with your friends. It really helps these stories reach more people. Fun fact, word of mouth is still the best way to market. And this is it for our season. We'll be taking the next few months off to work on a whole new season for you, which will be out sometime at the end of the year. In the meantime, though, we'll be back in your feed every now and then with some bonus content and episode updates. Thank you so, so much for tuning into Kerning Cultures this season. See you in a few months. Take care. Keep in touch. Stay safe. We love you.